For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Uh, let's talk a little bit about policing and funding and crime and things like this. President brought it up in the State of the Union. Our friend here, Josh Crawford from Young Voices, uh, he was writing about it before that and kind of presaged that this was going to be a part of the president's package. Josh, how are you, sir? Appreciate your time today. Doing very well. Thanks for having me. It's always a good feeling when you write something and say this is going to happen. And then a couple of weeks later, it happened. Uh, you pulled that off here. You wrote in town hall back in February uh, the 15th about that President Biden was going to, I don't know if you call it a pivot, but he was going to emphasize funding the police. We know this is after a couple of years of defund the police by certain uh, people on the left and out of the social justice movement. How did it feel when he announced it in the State of the Union? You kind of projected it that it was going to happen, but how did it land with you? Well, I'd still prefer to be better at predicting March Madness than than these kinds of things. But uh but, you know, President Biden never fully embraced the defund movement, the defund ideology or even the defund rhetoric, uh, and frankly, has a, a pretty strong track record of leveraging federal resources to local departments. Uh, the first time that was really done was in the 94 crime bill, which uh, he was one of the primary Senate authors of. Um, and as as crime sort of started to hit their radar, especially some of these skyrocketing homicide rates, in some of our large urban areas, one of the places that they went very quickly was uh, increasing federal funding to local departments. And so I'm, I'm pleased that he included that in his State of the Union because it is good policy. It's smart policy. It's been evaluated a number of times and is an effective crime reduction tool. Uh, but on its own, it will be insufficient to address what's gone on in the country over the last six years or so. Now, when he said it in the State of the Union, he actually emphasized it. I don't know if that was in the copy or not. He said it three or four times. He emphasized it, fun. You know how Joe Biden has that, you know, we're familiar with his speaking. He said, fun, fun, fun. Uh, that was not accidental. Obviously, this has, uh, before we get into the policy part of it, which you detail, there's a lot of optics to this. It is an election year. Uh, there is concerns about the crime rate along with other issues. This was an optics move to make sure he emphasized it above and beyond the policy that we're going to talk about later, wasn't it? Oh, I think that's absolutely right. I think that uh, the American people have repeatedly demonstrated that they trust Republicans on issues of public safety more than they do Democrats. Uh, I think that has been exacerbated by some of the far left rhetoric that has happened over the last couple of years related to not just defunding the police, but but members of the squad who have said things like abolish police, abolish prisons, uh, that polls really poorly in addition to the fact that it's bad policy. 
And so President Biden is sort of the de facto head of the Democrat Party, I think, is trying to cut the head off that snake and saying, no, we can believe in reforming various aspects of policing, but we absolutely believe in funding the police adequately. Yeah, Josh Crawford, a attorney in his own right, head of the Pegasus Institute out there in Louisville, Kentucky. Make sure you don't say the middle part of the word. They get upset at that sort of thing up there. Um, You've been a prosecutor before. How do you think prosecutors and police officers and the criminal justice, when they hear that from the president after a couple of years of ambiguity from the Democratic Party, how do you think it lands with them? So I think that it goes one of two ways, right? I think for some folks, it's refreshing because it means that there's bipartisan support for this idea of adequately funding law enforcement appropriately, of taking the, the crime problem, especially the homicide problem, seriously. Uh, but I think that there's a lot of folks who are going to look at it skeptically as well. Um, at the same time that we've had this defund the police movement, we've had this movement in large cities of these progressive prosecutors who uh, decide which crimes they will and will not uh, prosecute, which enhancements they will and will not use in ways that are more political than policy or public safety driven. Um, and so I think there's probably going to be a lot of skepticism. But uh, if if President Biden puts uh, his money where his mouth is on this, I think that there can be some some really positive outcomes. Yeah. And you've been on both sides of this. Again, you've been a prosecutor. You're in the policy world now more so. Um, let me just ask it this way, big picture, before we drill down in the policy. Why do we bifurcate this issue? Why is it always and I know the answer is the media and because it's it's so people can argue. Why do we always got to bifurcate these things to the extreme of, well, we're going to defund the police or we're going to give the police everything they want and have no accountability with the police either? And both of those things are the polar opposites of getting the results of what both of those groups of people claim to be wanting to get. How do we get out of that doom loop of doing that, do you think? Yeah, I think part of that is just sort of in in the time period that we live in where everything is so echo chamber oriented and social media tends to amplify uh, the extremes of both positions. There are folks who have a disposition towards public safety, towards law enforcement, towards that approach. There are folks who have a disposition towards uh, criminal defendants and uh, larger notions of justice and things like that. And it's always been that way, but uh, the extremes have sort of been amplified over the last couple of years so that you find fewer and fewer people saying things like gang violence is a serious problem in our cities, but we should also move to perhaps a treatment model as it relates to, to drug addicts as opposed to an incarceration model, right? Uh, both of those things are true. Both of those things probably should be approaches that we take. Uh, but one of those lies more in one political ideology and one more in the other. Uh, and people are just sort of entrenched in those. Yeah, talking to Josh Crawford. All right, let's get into the, the nitty gritty here and turn the noise down on a little bit. The crime rate people perceive it to be up? What does the numbers say? Is the crime rate rising? And what is causing that crime rate rise? Yeah. So when you talk about crime rates, you're talking about all crime, right? Um, What really is up considerably over the last six years is homicides in particular, and a few other violent offenses, things like carjackings, Uh, are up considerably. And that really begins in 2015. There's a substantial increase in homicides, uh, 2015 over 2014. There's another increase 2016 over 2015. Things kind of level off over the next couple of years and then explode again in 2020. And again, over and above that in 2021. And so we've sort of had this six-year trend, especially as it relates to homicides of sort of upper even, uh, very little by way of decline. 
Um, and so you see a lot of people talk about the last couple of years, but it really is sort of the last six years. Um, property crime has, has been pretty stable over that time period. Violent crime as a category, uh, again, is, is up over that time period as well. The, the reasons why are, are many fold. Uh, I always tell people to be skeptical of somebody who tells you that this is the one reason this thing is happening. Um, but violence, uh, especially homicide, concentrates among a very small number of individuals uh, who, engage, who are engaged in interpersonal disputes, largely within the subcontext of gangs or street groups. For your listeners who aren't academics, street groups walk like gangs, talk like gangs, act like gangs, just don't meet the uh, academic or official definitions of gangs because they lack hierarchy, but, but they're essentially gangs. Um, concentrates among those groups of people. And what you've seen over the last couple of years is increased activity among those individuals, especially in the last several years. There was a paper that was done about six months ago about L.A. that basically said that like uh, stay home orders didn't uh, have gangs stay home. So uh, as governments were locking down, private citizens may have been staying home, but gang members were still very active on the streets. And all of this has gone on over a time period where there has been reduced uh, self-initiated police activity. Self-initiated police activity is everything that law enforcement does that's not a response to a call for service. So it is things like motor vehicle and street stops, but it's also broadly what we think of as community policing. And so as this sort of de-policing effort has gone on, you have the complicating factors of COVID, you have some, some realignment among street gangs uh, across the country, and sort of it's this confluence of factors that has contributed to this significant increase in homicides, especially in our large cities. Now, it probably didn't affect the homicide rate directly, but I got to imagine it affected everything so much. How much did COVID affect policing and law enforcement? I know it had a massive effect on the criminal justice system because it backlogged an already backlogged uh, criminal justice system because you want to start talking about overcrowding people. That's the bottom end of the detention system to a T. Um, how much did that affect a lot of this? And then we're going to be seeing some backwash into the stats as we go forward, do you think? Yeah, so the... The big way that COVID impacted uh, homicides, especially, was that it, it resulted in changes in law enforcement practices in an effort to reduce the spread, right? You had uh, far fewer community police interactions that weren't absolutely essential, right? So law enforcement was still responding to 911 calls if, you, if your house was broken into or you were a victim of domestic violence or various things like that, right? But they weren't out uh, policing and interacting with folks. Uh, obviously, you have the complicating factors of, of protest and, and rioting that took place over the summer of 2020 uh, into the fall of that year. And so all of that contributes. But the, the problem is, is that as COVID dissipates and even as practices return to normal, violence tends to build on itself because so much violence is retaliatory in nature. So if you have a year with 50 homicides, that's only 50 potential instances of retaliation the following year. Well, if you have a year with 100 homicides, you now have 100 potential instances uh, of retaliation the following year. That doesn't obviously include non-fatal non-fatal shootings and things like that that also contribute to that. And so violence tends to build on itself that way absent some sort of intervention. And there are, there are strategies that work to do that, uh, but you can't just hope that with COVID dissipating that the violence will dissipate as well. Yeah, talking to Josh Crawford. Um, Along those lines, though, how big a deal is it? And especially when we start talking about funding later on on policy wise, crimes a lot like foreign policy. You either get ahead of it or you wind up with a real big mess later on down the road. 
why do you think we can't seem to have a steady focus? Uh, I know a lot of this is locally based because everybody has to police a little differently. Why can't we get some consistency on preventative measures as opposed to just chasing these stats? Because like you just said, chasing the stats kind of become a self-defeating thing. How's a way to change that narrative? Because the narrative is going to affect the policy, which affects the money, which affects how you actually go out and police these communities. How do we kind of get a, a door in there to start affecting that, do you think? Well, I think in many ways, public safety policy was a victim of its own success. Uh, we kind of figured this all out in the mid-1990s, right? And uh, New York City went from a city with you know 3,000 homicides a year to 300 homicides a year over a 25-year period, right? That's an incredible success. Uh, and lots of cities around the country, LA, other places, had similar successes, uh, not quite as large, not quite as deep, but they weren't starting in such a bad place. And so I think a lot of folks kind of took their eye off the ball because we had figured it out, right? We, we were reducing crime. Crime was on a 24-year uh, decline for, uh, for a, a period of time there from the 1990s until 2014. And so we could look around and say like, hey, we've got this figured out. We don't have to worry about it. We can start worrying about other things. Um, but the problem is, is that that public safety policy is like any other policy area, right? Just because you've figured something out in the tax code today doesn't mean that you can turn around and do whatever you want to the tax code tomorrow. Uh, just because you've figured out something in education policy today doesn't mean you can turn around and, and do whatever you want in education policy tomorrow. And the same kind of thing happened with public safety policy. Some people took their eye off and then some other people assumed that public safety was now a constant. You could do whatever you wanted and there wouldn't be ramifications. Yeah, talking to Josh Crawford. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back on Herd Tell, we're going to get into some of these numbers. We're going to get into the specifics of the policy, uh, talking about uh, defund and fund the police, the eternal battle. Also talk a little bit about what's federal, what's local, another eternal struggle in the United States of America. Josh Crawford of the Pegasus Institute and an attorney. More with him right after this on Herd Tell. Welcome back to Hertel. Continuing our conversation with Josh Crawford, talking a little law enforcement, criminal justice. Uh, let's let's look at some policy stuff here now and and kind of dig into this because you can throw the buzzwords around and we criticize the buzzwords, but if you don't have a policy to answer it, that's all you got. Uh, I constantly wonder here when you talk about things like funding and defunding police. We've learned with education. We've learned with foreign policy. You pick anything you want, just throwing money at something never, ever solves it. And most of the time, it usually makes it worse. Uh, the same is true in policing, isn't it? Yeah, there's an element of that that's definitely true. And especially when you talk about injecting federal dollars into local police departments. Um, I mentioned earlier that there have been a number of evaluations of these injections of money because it's, it's really happened in a substantial way twice. And one of the evaluations found that one of the, the downsides to this was that local police departments sometimes just use those federal dollars to supplant local dollars. So rather than using that money to plus up a police force or to buy new equipment or to upgrade the equipment or something like that, uh, or to move officers off a desk and onto the street and hire administrative support, 
they just took that money and then reduced their local uh, allocation of funds by whatever that dollar amount was. Um, and so there were a couple of departments that were evaluated after the 1990s injection of money that actually reduced their overall police force, uh, even though they accepted all this federal money. And so one of the things that needs to happen if the federal government is going to, to do an additional injection of money that way is to try to have some guardrails on it so that it does go to the deployment of additional officers onto the street who are doing the types of things that we want law enforcement officers to do. And that's the other thing uh, about this money that could be potentially beneficial is there are strategies and uh, approaches that work better than others, right? We know what works and we know what doesn't work when it comes to combating urban violence, especially homicides, especially. Um, and so incentivizing police departments to adopt those tactics and those strategies uh, through the leveraging of federal dollars can be really beneficial as well. Um, in, in sort of a strange uh, twist of fate, if you will, one of the major problems with these programs in the past is that the federal government hasn't had strings attached to it. They've just kind of thrown the money at it the way you, you've articulated. Continuing to talk to Josh Crawford, uh, how does this play into people's uh, priors? Because it's, it's always been fascinating to me that you have somebody, not to pick on anybody, but you have somebody that says, well, I'm a small government conservative. I believe in limited government. But then they don't ever apply that to the police, which is the armed enforcement arm of the U.S. government. Um, we talk about federal versus local. We talk about federalism. Why do we have this a little bit of a disconnect that we don't apply that when we start talking about police funding? And then it's things like, oh, well, we'll just take all this free federal money. That seems to cut through a lot of ideology in a big old hurry. Uh, is that what's happening with this? Or do people just really have a disconnect when it comes to federal funding for policing? So I think part of it is that uh, the protection of public safety is the most important domestic function of government, right? Um, there are lots of things that governments do, state, local, and otherwise, uh, federal especially, that people who believe what I believe don't think that the government should be doing that. But it's at its base level, the very purpose of government is the protection of public safety. And so that means that the allocation of, of government resources of taxpayer money to the protection of public safety uh, is essentially the first place that that money should go, right? Uh, there are two really important caveats there, though. The first is, is that money being spent efficiently? Because that's still a valuable question. Just because it's an essential function of government doesn't mean that you throw money at it and just hope it works as opposed to testing whether or not it does work. And the second is, is what they're doing an actual function of the protection of public safety? Is it an actual uh, function of preserving public order, right? And I think that there's a lot of folks who would tell you that, that law enforcement does a, a wide variety of things that would be better suited for either non-law enforcement uh, entities or that could be done more efficiently if they adopted strategies and techniques that, that could more readily address those problems. And so uh, I think, especially in places where uh, conservatives have kind of taken the reins uh, over the years, New York City under uh, Mayor Giuliani and uh, Commissioner Bratton, Bill Bratton, being sort of the prime example of like, yeah, they, they plussed up resources and the police department had uh, not, not whatever it wanted, but, but more, more to that than in, in previous iterations. But they were also very accountable. They did a lot of things to root out corruption within the NYPD over that time period. And that's because I think those folks understood that this is not only an essential function of government, but it is the entity of government with which the public is most likely to interact, right? 
most people's interaction with an agent of government is primarily going to be a law enforcement officer. And so if if people don't trust police or they have a negative interaction with law enforcement, that not only reflects law enforcement, but it reflects government. And so you have to do sort of all of the above if you're going to take an approach that is really successful over the long term. Yeah. And we're talking to Josh Crawford, Pegasus Institute, an attorney and a Young Voices contributor. Uh, This is an ugly, hard question, but I'm just going to ask it because that's where we're at with this conversation. When we talk about police accountability and you just mentioned it, that yeah, the the things like in New York City, you have to have the accountability element of it. The one thing that everybody should be able to agree on, whether they're social justice folks or conservatives, you need accountability in policing. The hard truth of this is there's just no other mechanism for true accountability and policing other than the funding and controlling the funding to make sure people are accountable, is it? Well, so the the interesting thing about that is that crime concentrates among a small number of people and a small number of micro locations. Police misconduct also concentrates among a small number of officers. And so um, there have been a number of evaluations done that have found, you know, that north of 50 percent of complaints in an entire department are against a relatively small number of officers. And so what there actually needs to be are mechanisms by which the, the bad actors are, are dealt with as bad actors, as opposed to trying to either financially or structurally change the department, change entire policies. That's one of the things that we're kind of living through the consequences of here in Louisville was long before the, the botched execution of a warrant that resulted in the death of uh, Breonna Taylor, there was a high profile incident in which a, a young black man was pulled over by two LMPD officers and the LMPD officers um, didn't assault this young man whatsoever, but, but mistreated him verbally. I mean, we're, we're inappropriate with him verbally. And rather than reprimand those officers or retrain those officers or retrain the entire department on how to deal with those things, LMPD changed its motor vehicle stop policy. And so because of the actions of, of two officers and the, the perceived community reaction to those actions, the entire stop policy changes and there's some negative consequences associated with that stop policy. And so what policymakers actually have to be able to do is to, to recognize the reality of the concentration of those misdeeds and then uh, adjudicate those misdeeds accordingly. Yeah, talking to Josh Crawford, you talked about it in your piece you wrote back in February. Uh, you used the term hyper-focus. Um, the problem is, of course, the federal government doesn't do hyper-focus really good. But when you right. talk about things like uh, violence intervention, like the federal government's great at, here's money, go hire a bunch more police officers. They're, they're right. good at that. But that's not solving the problem. These right. local policies, like you just said, you have these focus groups that need attention. You have focused areas that need attention. How do we marry those two? How do we get that square peg in that round hole of you have the the federal money to come in and try to f- help local municipalities that might be over their head? But at the same time, those pieces are incongruent with each other. Uh, talk about that a little bit and how we can maybe streamline that process some. Yeah, the protection of public safety and the preservation of public order is primarily the responsibility of local police departments enforcing state laws, right? The federal government has a role to play in the form of task forces. Uh, Obviously, there are federal laws that can be broken. There are federal law enforcement agencies, but it is primarily the responsibility of local departments enforcing state laws. And so because of that, 
the federal government can uh, inject money into some of these places to help solve some of these problems, and that's valuable. And the federal government can and should be repositories of information on best practices. Um, if something works well in Boston, it doesn't mean that Omaha knows that it exists. And so the, the federal government can help say, hey, this thing has worked really well in Boston. They've replicated it in Baltimore and Minneapolis. And so, hey, Louisville, hey, Omaha, hey, Birmingham, uh, you ought maybe to try this uh, because these these situations may be the same and it may work and it may not. Um, but primarily because you're talking about local law enforcement, uh, that is who is going to be uh, your primary entity that is responsible for the protection of public safety, but is also going to be able to be the most innovative and responsive to the specific needs of the community. There are some sort of universal truths in, in public safety policy. Like I said, a lot of it is, is the, what they refer to as the law, the law of crime concentration. Crime concentrates in uh, certain areas and among certain people. In large cities, about 5% of one block street segments are responsible for about 50% of your crime. Uh, so that's one block street segments. Uh, in small cities, it's like one, or excuse me, it's uh, two to 3% of one block street segments are responsible for 50% of your crime. Uh, the same is true of individuals. About 5% of offenders, not 5% of your population, 5% of offenders are responsible for 50% of your violence. That's about a half a percentage of your city's population are responsible for more than 50% of your violence. And so local departments know who those folks are. Uh, other entities and nonprofits know who those folks are because they're the same folks uh, that CPS is dealing with. They're the same folks that the schools are dealing with. And so when you focus on those individuals and the groups that they're a part of, again, those street groups or gangs, which are major contributors to a lot of this in our cities, then you can focus law enforcement resources on those folks where they need the law enforcement resources. And you can focus social service resources on those folks. For, for a fair number of those people, they want to leave those lifestyles behind, uh, but, but lack the resources to do so. And by resources, I don't mean they lack the money to do so. I mean, they lack a government issue ID. They lack a, a driver's license. And so every time they drive a car, they're getting pulled over. They have money for rent, um, but don't have a, a savings account or something like that, right? And there's, there's ways to leverage these things to get folks onto successful paths in life that can help leave that lifestyle behind that are a lot more simple than most people think, right? Like most people think like, oh, this person needs to go get a college degree or, oh, this person needs to get a job. And there's some truth to that. But a lot of these folks have needs that are much more basic than that. And if you can meet those needs, then they can get themselves on a track where they can get a job or they can get some additional education and they can start to become uh, productive members of society. Yeah. Talking to Joshua Crawford, uh, he's the executive director of the Pegasus Institute in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, let's put a bow on this with Louisville, Kentucky, though. We started with President Biden, the State of the Union, the pomp and circumstances, the concentration of political power. You are in a city that was front and center uh, with social justice and criminal justice issues for the better part of two years now, really. As you dedicated, it wasn't just Breonna Taylor. There was stuff before that. There's been stuff since that. Put a personal face on it for people that just see a headline in Louisville and the national headline, though, because you live there. All those resources you talk about when there's contention between the community and the police, those resources get stretched in, in ways that are unhelpful. The police get stretched in ways that are unhelpful. The citizens are stretched and unhelpful. Just talk on a personal level what it's like in a city when the police and the community are not working in partnership. And that kind of just messes up everything else, doesn't it? 
Well, what happens when those things aren't operating the way they're supposed to is Trinity Randolph. Trinity Randolph was a three-year-old girl who uh, in, in the middle of the day was executed in her front yard uh, along with her father and uh, while she played in a playhouse and was buried in a Disney coffin. When those things don't work well, it's DeQuante Hobbs Jr., who was a seven-year-old boy who was sitting at his kitchen table eating birthday cake, playing on a tablet uh, when a bullet came through the front window uh, of his home and struck him in the head. And he bled out while his mother tried to perform CPR to save his life. Um, Louisville had 188 murders last year, 173 the year before that. Uh, we had uh, more than 20 children killed uh, last year. And that's what that looks like. Um, when these things don't work well, the most vulnerable members of our community who are in the most desperate need of the most basic functions of government and civil society are the ones who suffer the most. Yeah. Joshua Crawford. Uh, that's why we will continue to talk about these issues, uh, because uh, police and like education, like a lot of other things, it affects all of us in some way, shape or form. And we need to have these conversations about it. Appreciate your time today, sir. Let folks know where you're writing, what you got going on in your social media so they can continue to follow you and get good information like you gave us today. Well, you can find all my stuff uh, either on Pegasus's website, which is PegasusKentucky.org. Uh, we're on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, all the social media platforms. Fantastic stuff. I appreciate your time. We'll have you back on to update this because it's an election year. Uh, so I suspect we'll hear a lot about criminal justice and the crime rate and things like that. Look forward to having you back and we appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Thank you.